Somebody asked me about the Russian Federation under Putin. What did I think? It's sort of like the USFL. <laughs> it was, <laughs> it's not going to stand the test of time. Here we are. Finally, the inaugural episode of Global. I am thrilled. We're doing my favorite country in the world. Russia. That's Russia to non-Russian speakers. But before we dive in, I would be remiss if I did not mention that IRI is a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to advancing democracy worldwide. So, so Sam, I am by no means a Russia expert or a Russian Federation expert. Could you tell me a little bit more about Russia? What do we need to know? First off, I'm thrilled that you referred to it as the Russian Federation because it is, in fact, a federal government. There are regional legislatures, regional executives, governors, uh, and a federal level government uh, that has a bicameral letter legislature, if we, if we must get technical. Uh, that's the, the State Duma, which has 450 members. Uh, there's a prime minister and a president, who, of course, is Vladimir Putin. We all know very well. Vladimir Putin. Mm-hmm. Uncle Vova, as he's referred to. <laughs> and Russia, despite its size as twice the United States Indeed. in landmass, is very sparsely populated, correct? That's right, Stacy. The population is about half that of the United States, roughly 146 million people. Most of those people are concentrated in the West, in Moscow and St. Petersburg. Uh, once you go farther east, it's very, very sparsely populated. And very cold. And very cold. One could say most of it's very cold. Uh, the economy also is, is a little bit smaller than I think most people realize. It's approximately the size of Italy. Um, I did not know that. Indeed. Indeed. Well, who, uh, who's up on our docket today? Today, we have the senior senator from South Carolina, Mr. Lindsey Graham, who, in his long career on the Armed Services and uh, Foreign Relations Committees, uh, has dealt with Russia extensively. We also have Andrew Kramer. Oh, he's the New York Times correspondent who's based in Moscow, right? Precisely. And our third guest? Our third guest is Bakhtiyor Nishanov, a man of Uzbek nationality, uh, who is the deputy director for our Eurasia programs. Great. I'm excited to hear what they all have to say. Likewise. So we've heard a lot about Russia in the news recently. It's kind of a hot topic, um, especially their disinformation campaign and what Russia is hoping to gain from this. So this is why we're focusing on on that topic for this episode. And we're going to assume, correct me if I'm wrong, Sam, that most listeners will know a brief history of the Soviet Union. Yes. As much as I would like to delve into the storied history, the 300 years of Romanov rule, the uh, unbelievable sacrifice that the Soviet Union made in World War II, 50 dead soldiers for every one dead American soldier, just saying, or the turbulent presidency of Boris Yeltsin. We simply don't have time. To learn more about Russia's history, we chatted over Skype with Andrew Kramer, a correspondent for the New York Times who's actually based in Moscow, and he's been there for the last 10 years. Hello. We were hoping that you could give a quick rundown of some of the key major events the listeners need to know to understand the current state of Russia um, from 1991 through present day. 
in the Soviet Union, there were really three uh, pillars that, that that propped up the government and and the um, uh, and and the country. And these pillars of the Soviet Union were the, the Communist Party, uh, the, the the Red Army, the military, and the KGB, the security apparatus. After the collapse of uh, communism, uh, all three were. Uh, wobbled and, and and in the case of the Communist Party uh, collapsed and uh, in the 1990s uh, the country was looking around for uh, alternatives and um, one idea of what happened in the 1990s was it was an effort by the the Yeltsin government uh, with Western support to create another uh, another pillar in in, uh, in Russia which would be a capitalist class uh, 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 people with um, a vested interest in in economic reform. Um, and this was done very quickly uh, by privatizing state property for uh, ended up in the hands of a few lucky Russians who came to be known as the oligarchs, uh, created a lot of resentment in the rest of society because of this unfairness and because the broader economic reforms had had failed, at least initially uh, in the 1990s. The economic reforms, well, ultimately, they led to a period of prosperity in Russia, which is what we had in the last decade or so. Um, the initial uh, uh, consequence of these economic reforms w- was was a deepening of the poverty that, that people had experienced in the, in the late Soviet period. So people in Russia blamed the reformers for this this hardship, but really it was the extension of the the economic problems uh, of the late Soviet period. So you have this broad arc in, in the in the post-Soviet period of of uh, initial chaos and then stabilization and resentment to. Uh, anybody involved in the early reforms, um, including people associated with the, the Yeltsin government, and this is really exploited today by uh, by President Putin and his team uh, to criticize the West and and cast anybody inside Russia who wants to cooperate more closely with the West as uh, uh, by 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 tarring them as as similar to the reformers of the 1990s who brought chaos and uh, and difficulties to Russia. So how does that shape the citizen's psyche today under a Putin administration? Oh, that, that's a very good question. Thank you. It's easy for the state media to point to um, the hardships that took place back then and, and blame it on the West. And that's really what the meaning of it is today, that uh, referencing um, these difficulties is a way to discourage Russians from wanting to cooperate with uh, with Western governments, with Western Europe, and, and wanting to reform uh, their, uh, their political system because democracy, during this transition, democracy and capitalism uh, became joined in, in the, in the Rus- Russian consciousness as, as liberal reforms. So who is Vladimir Putin in all of this, and how does this messaging benefit him? Vladimir Putin grew, grew up in a suburb of St. Petersburg and uh, as a young man joined the KGB um, and eventually the foreign um, section of the KGB uh, to work in, in eastern Germany, um, uh, where he was during the uh, collapse of, of communism in eastern Europe. So Putin came back to Russia uh, and St. Petersburg in, in the early 1990s at, at, a, at a point when there was a lot of um, interest in, um, in these reforms. Um, he had exposure to uh, life in Western Germany um, via his work in the East as a, a managing spies. Um, and he joined with a very progressive uh, mayor, uh, Sabchak, um, as, an, as an aide or a deputy, um, deputy mayor under Sabchak. So he was a public figure, a public politician, um, 
as a deputy mayor of a large uh, Russian metropolitan area of 5 million people. Um, he, uh, in 1991, he came out against the August coup, the hardline coup. So you have um, uh, hardliners uh, trying to preserve the Soviet Union um, and restore a more authoritarian system. And Putin, um, at that time, organized protesters to come out on the streets in St. Petersburg to oppose this coup um, and that was trying to uh, uh, retain the Soviet Union as it was. So later he would, you know, he, he would uh, he would say the collapse of the Soviet Union was a geopolitical tragedy. But at the time when he had a chance to choose a side, he actually chose the side of, of a reformist, um, uh, his reformist mentor, Subchak, uh, rather than these 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 hardliners. Um, and that was his job up until uh, uh, Sobchak was voted out um, in 1996. And and. Uh, the lesson from this uh, local campaign was that democracy doesn't always produce the right results. That was that was a lesson that Putin took away from it. Um, after that, uh, uh, Putin accepted the offer to come work in Moscow in the property department of the Yeltsin administration, a sort of mid-level bureaucratic job, uh, worked his way up, parlayed that into uh, other better opportunities, eventually became director of the FSB, the successor agency to the KGB for internal affairs for domestic security under Yeltsin. Um, and from there, uh, he was chosen as Yeltsin's successor. So what is his long-term goal? That's a difficult question. I, I, I think that the, the initial two terms of, of his presidency were, uh, were very successful in restoring uh, uh, Russia uh, domestically. He, he um, uh, prosecuted the war in Chechnya very, very brutally, but uh, brought it to a close. Um, and he, uh, through the oil boom, um, restored economic stability I think his his second uh, spell as president, which began in 2012, in, in, in my mind, the focus is on restoring uh, Russia's um, historical role in, in 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 its sphere, which is spans Europe and Asia. I mean, not necessarily the restoration of the Soviet Union, but the restoration of the of the Russian Empire in some form uh, of a, uh, a a great power uh, role for Russia. So given what you've just described, what in practice is is the type of government that currently exists in Russia and how does it work? Um, that's also a very good question. Um, sometimes um, what, what exists is called a phony democracy um, and, and not only in relation to Russia, but in relation to other other um, governments uh, around the world where you have a constitutional order which describes a democratic process. But you have de facto control by a, uh, a clique of, of individuals, perhaps. Uh, but you have a lot of countries, and particularly in this part of the world, where there are nominal democracies, but in fact, um, there's uh, no uh, uh, competitive democracy as we would see it in, in, in a Western um, country or in a local contest in, in, uh, in a state in the United States, for example, where you have multiple people vying for, uh, for leadership positions. Um, in, in Russia, we've had opposition uh, politicians um, shot um, and, um, and also prosecuted. Um, in, now, in the Russian understanding, though, they disagree with the idea, the government disagrees with the idea that, that opposition politicians are the liberal pro-Western figures who are under so much pressure uh, these days. People such as Boris Nemtsov, who was uh, assassinated in, in central Moscow two years ago, um, they say that the opposition is really... Uh, the uh, Communist Party, uh, which has representation in, in Parliament, uh, the Liberal Democratic Party of Russia, Nationalist Group, uh, also represented in Parliament. And 
some other um, uh, political parties, which are, in fact, consistently supportive of, of the government um, rather than being um, in opposition to it. The story of Boris Nemtsov is important to know. Here's Bhakti with more information. So uh, a couple of years ago, and this anniversary is coming up, um, a prominent uh, Russian opposition fi- figure, uh, somebody who's been very, who's worked in a, in a Russian government, uh, somebody who's been a truly, truly massive supporter of, of you know, the things that, that, that we stand for, something that, you know, Russian citizens stand for, uh, Boris Nemtsov, um, literally walking, walking uh, with somebody else downtown Moscow, um, literally steps away from the Kremlin. He was gunned down in downtown Moscow. Um, and and this is shocking. Uh, I, 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 for me, it was a personal, personal loss. I mean, we've, we've all known uh, buddies um, in, in some capacity or not. A truly life-loving, uh, freedom-loving uh, person who stood for the right things. And no one really knows. And this is fascinating because Russia is a country where everything is being recorded and watched, right? And especially if you're right in front of the Kremlin. I mean, this is it's like it's right in front of White House or Congress. I mean, where are the you know where are the cops? Where is the is it, where's the surveillance? Nothing of that of that sort uh, came came to light. And you know, right now there's a court case going on against you know the uh, alleged uh, you know um, the the person who killed him. Um, but there are so many murky details on that, and and I think complicating all this stuff was, you know, following his death, um, Putin just disappeared from public life for a couple of days. Just no one knew what happened. Anyway, uh, but Boris is dead now, and um, yeah, and uh, I, I hope that you know at some point uh, in future the truth will come to 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 light. Now back to our conversation with Andrew Kramer in Moscow. You mentioned that there real. Really, is no competitiveness in this democ- in the democracy to speak of at all. Wh- who are some of the current current op- opposition leaders, or who? Where are the groups that are kind of fighting for change in Russia? It, it seems most likely that that political change will come from the emerging consumer society in, in Russia, um, where you have people um, expecting more from uh, the uh, the companies they they, they patronize. Uh, from uh, the uh, services that they use. And as they demand more from uh, these uh, services, these companies, they also demand more from their government um, and so on. Uh, So there's this pressure building for better governance uh, uh, from in particular large metropolitan areas in Russia. And it seems most likely that this would be uh, where political change would come from. And we saw this in 2011 um, in the so-called white ribbon uh, movement protests uh, led by Alexei Navalny, a real estate lawyer uh, who was concerned with these issues of fighting corruption, uh, bringing better governance, uh, better um, uh, local government uh, to Russia. Uh, and this ultimately fizzled. He was prosecuted and, and sidelined, but he, he did win 25% or so of the uh, vote for mayor in Moscow a city of 10 million people. Uh, these people are um, also, uh, this emerging middle class is also uh, situated in the politically important geography of Russia. Uh, within a 10 kilometer radius of the Kremlin, there are about 5 million uh, middle class uh, Russians. Um, they're there for the long term. Uh, their interests uh, are, uh, are not changing. And it will be a challenge for any authoritarian government uh, inside the Kremlin to. Uh, coexist with this group um, 
which surrounds them. Mr. Kramer, thank you for speaking with us today from Moscow. Stay warm. Thank you. Bye. For our listeners, if you'd like to follow Mr. Kramer's reporting from Moscow, he's on Twitter at Andrew Kramer NYT. To learn more about Russia, Stacy and I had the incredible opportunity to sit and talk with Senator Graham in his office in Washington, D.C. He was most gracious. Well, Senator, you've been in the U.S. Senate since 2003 and a member of Congress since 1995, and you spent most of that time on foreign affairs and armed services committees. So given your role there, uh, how have you seen Russia evolve over those 20 years? Uh, Coming out of the shadows of the Soviet Union, breaking apart, uh, attempt at democracy, an effort to stage a coup by the military that was rejected by the Russian people, uh, struggling young democracy lost its way in terms of its identity, along comes the strongman, and uh, it's gone from being an emerging democracy, Russia, bordered by other emerging democracies, to basically a police state, uh, not an ideology, not communism, Putinism, which is all about him, and uh, it's sad to see every instrument of democracy, institution of democracy, to be diminished. The Duma's a rubber stamp, and the judiciary is not independent, and he's a crook. It's really sad to have somebody running Russia, which is a great country with proud people, who is just stealing them blind. One of these, these tools of uh, the police state that we see is campaigns of disinformation, obviously. Uh, how does Putin and the Kremlin execute those campaigns of disinformation? Well, one, you control the media. There's no independent voices left. Uh, didn't y'all get kicked out? We did. Okay, we so did. the first thing you do if you're a, you're a totalitarian, autocratic dictator is you get rid of IRI and NDI because y'all are up to no good in their eyes. Dissent. Um, another view of looking at the same problem is a really scary proposition. Dictators are scared people. And scared people, rather than convincing somebody of the power of their idea by persuasion, debate, and dialogue, basically try to suppress dissent, uh, the consolidation of the media in the hands of Russia, uh, of, of uh, Putin's Russia. There is no independent voice. Having opposition leaders gunned down in the shadow of the Kremlin when all the video cameras suddenly were turned off. So it's a bad, bad place right now. The, the opposition in, in Russia, they're very brave, they're very limited. And they have few tools available to them. That's why what we're talking about here today matters. And how does this, the campaigns of disinformation, serve Putin's agenda? Well, I mean, it, it creates a narrative. His narrative is that, you know, proud Russia under siege by West, treated like third world country, that all of your problems are generated by the West, not by my incompetency, uh, creating boogeyman, uh, selling the strong leader model, you know. Russian TV is just one long commercial for Putin. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, pretty creative programming that has uh, a common theme that, you know, our dear leader Putin is, uh, you know, the right guy at the right time for Russia. And under his leadership, we're coming back. We're going to come back. And, you know, the media and the disinformation is trying to mask the reality that most Russians' lives are deteriorating in terms of quality, prosperity, and longevity. 
So, so Senator Graham, you just returned from Estonia, as I understand. How ha- has this disinformation campaign penetrated though that area of the world? And also, what are the attitudes of elected officials in Estonia? Estonia is very worried. The last eight years has been bad for our frontline democracies. Obama's been pretty weak uh, in, in the eyes of Russia. Putin's kind of ran, run us over all over the world. Uh, you know, when they removed the statute of Lenin, in 2007 or 8, in Estonia, the Russians hacked into their power grid and cut the lights off, cut the lights out. There's constant misinformation. Uh, Russian media is very dominant in the Russian-speaking uh, populations of Estonia. To the Estonian Russian-speaking people, they've been very patriotic, but I worry that it will take a toll over time. And what we need to do from the West perspective is to, I'm going to create a counter-Russia account in the appropriations bill. I'm in charge of the foreign operations bill that will uh, have grant money available to governments like Estonia that can come up with ways to counter the propaganda of Russia, the disinformation. Movements like this have already begun. Here's IRI's own Miriam Lexman calling in from Brussels to explain more. So the weekend project counters these information efforts of Kremlin by building coalitions between governments and civil society, as well by development of ICT tools, which is shedding light on, on this on this effort of Kremlin. The ICT tool is a web-based application, which is trying to, or through which we are trying to shed light on, on the Kremlin's disinformation efforts by producing data-driven analysis on the connections between disinformation and anti-liberal movements or sentiments or narratives. Okay, back to Senator Graham. So in your opinion, do you believe that the sentiment that you observed in Estonia is reflected in other Eastern European democracies? Oh, absolutely. I went to every Baltic nation and there are two messages. Keep your troops here. We want a permanent U.S. presence of trainers. Help us push back against the disinformation and the propaganda and create free trade agreements with us so that we'll have an outlet in terms of our economy beyond Russia. So what I hope to take back from this trip is to tell our colleagues and ask General Mattis, the new Secretary of Defense, to commit to the Baltic states. So it sounds, based on what you said, that they really feel the pressure of a lot of threats coming from Russia. What are those threats, and and are they real? Okay. Well, number one, the military threat. The, The western district of the Russian military is tripled doubled in size in the last couple of years. So the Russian military presence along the Baltic borders has grown dramatically. That's that's why they want some U.S. presence. Uh, Very aggressive cyber warfare attacking, uh, you know, like in Georgia, not a Baltic state, but an emerging democracy. Uh, They invited Crimean parliamentarians to come to a regional conference to kind of stand up to Putin. And for that invitation, uh, the parliament's website was shut down by, by Russia. So at the end of the day, I think what we need to do is more. More trade, more troops, more presence. And the threats are military. Uh, but more than anything else, I think they're propaganda, disinformation, and economic sanctions. And IRI, obviously, we are committed to a... a more democratic world, uh, and ideally that, that more democratic world would include a future version of Russia that is in good standing in the community of nations. Right. What 
in your assessment, does that version of Russia look like? Okay, how does this movie end, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, here's what I think eventually happens. If we go on the offense, if we expose Russia and the way Putin does business to the Russian people through Radio Free Europe, Voice of America, and, and get more creative, give tools to the frontline states to inform their populations, stop the expansion of Russian propaganda, contain it inside of Russia, sanctions. If we stand up to Putin in the Mideast, this Syrian agreement's a nightmare for us in the region. And Congress passes sanctions that hits Russia and their energy sector and their financial services sector. Then their economy, which has gone from the size of Italy to Spain, is going to fill it. That combined with a real effort to inform the Russian people where you're headed under Putin and he's stolen you blind will be his demise. All of these autocratic dictators eventually uh, run out of asphalt, run out of propaganda, because the average Russian's life is going down, not up, and sanctions, I think, are necessary to not only deter Putin, but to create the mechanism for change inside of Russia. There'll be a new leader one day. Russia will go back to the democratic way of doing business one day, because if they want to succeed, that's the only way to do it over time. Are there any specific political or, or democratic developments that, that would be necessary for Russia to be readmitted into the community of nations? Yeah, well, I, yeah, I think, one, Putin's got to, one, stop invading his neighbors. Uh, he's got to stop trying to break in. His goal is pretty simple, destroy the European Union and weaken NATO. Uh, his Syrian policy is to, create, is to support the butcher of Damascus Assad who's killed four or 500,000 of his people. Russia's been right behind Assad, creating a refugee problem for Europe. You can see how Europe is beginning to divide and at war with itself. Pushing the refugees into Europe has created a backlash. And you see a worldwide movement basically to look inward. You see it in Italy. I worry about France and Germany. You can see Russia's hand in Italy. You can see it in our elections more to come. And we're just going to have to push back and realize that international organizations that support democracy are the safest way for America to exist and the best foreign Mm -hmm. policy. Do you have an estimate on the timeline for Putin's leaving office? No, I don't. I, I, you know, I don't know how it's going to happen, when it's going to happen, but it'll happen. It always does. History does repeat itself, doesn't it? You know, systems that are designed to help a few and indifferent to most don't last over the span of history. The Soviet Union collapsed of its own weight. You know, people got tired of not having any hope or sense of hope. Uh, Putin's Russia is becoming more autocratic, more dictatorial. And there'll come a time when the quality of life deteriorates and the propaganda begins to make less sense. Our job is to expedite this. The biggest beneficiary over time of Russian sanctions, believe it or not, will be the Russian people because it will create some opportunity for change. Well, thank you for your time, Senator. Thank you very thank much. Thank you. Thank you. 
So we've heard from a reporter from the New York Times and a sitting U.S. senator, but to learn more about where Russia's headed in the future, we wanted to talk to someone who actually grew up in the Soviet Union and the so-called Russian sphere of influence. That's where IRI's own deputy director for Eurasia comes in. A man who was born in Uzbekistan, has worked in the democracy and governance sphere for over a decade, and speaks three languages, Uzbek, Russian, and English. I'm actually going to let him introduce himself because I can't even pronounce his name. Thank you so much, Stacey. I'm really happy to be here and honored to be here. And uh, my name is... So, okay, I'm going to give you the full version and then the short version. The full version is Bakhtiyor Nishanov. But then, uh, um, so I go by by first name only, like, I don't know, like Madonna or something. So, uh, Bakhti. So when are the next elections? Presidential election is the next big election in Russia. Technically not supposed to take place until 2018. However, um multiple, multiple sources, including uh, the state budget. Uh, there's a line item in the state budget that actually uh, provides money for an, an election to be conducted in 2017. Um, it makes a lot of sense. If I were if I were President Putin, probably I would want to have my election next year just because, you know, the reserve fund that's been kind of, you know, um, keeping Russia afloat, you know, um, even in light of uh, really low oil prices, you know, they had a national uh, fund that actually that they used to, uh, to, to pay, uh, you know, salaries and whatnot. That money's going to run out pretty soon. So, you know, if I am, uh, if I'm somebody who's considering running, I probably do want to run uh, for president in a situation where I still can't pay my people to, you know, uh, pay salaries and whatnot while I still have that image. So, I do think there's a really high probability we're going to see election in Russia in 2017. There are uh, regional elections in September of 2017. They are regularly scheduled. Next elections in 2017, maybe. When we ha- when those elections occur, what are, what will they look like? Will there be opposition candidates? What will the messaging be like from the Putin administration and the Kremlin? Absolutely. So, uh, you know, an independent opposition candidate has already announced that he's going to run. It's Alexei Navalny, somebody who's ran for mayor of Moscow a couple of years ago. And, you know, uh, within a few months, put together an amazing campaign that and he got 25 percent of the vote. I mean, close to that. So um, he's already announced that he's going to run. But again, the issue is, you know, as an independent candidate, he's got to collect vote. He's got to collect signatures. I mean, this is a process that, you know, um, allows the government to really control who is part of a election process who's not so he's announced he's gonna run we're also gonna definitely gonna have um gonna hand-picked um opposition candidates running and but those are Kremlin-controlled people. Somebody like Vladimir Zhirinovsky, who's been a mainstay of Russian politics as a nationalist politician. Uh, communist is going to be probably allowed to run. Uh, somebody from just Russia is going to run. Um, you know, the bottom line is you're going to have an election where you're going to have all the elements of a competitive election. You're going to have, um, you know, opposition. you will have some fiery rhetoric and all that stuff. But um, if Putin runs, I think we're pretty, pretty obvious. He is going to win this election and um, he's going to, continue being president of Russia. So um, we'll have all the elements, but it's not going to be a free or a fair election. Uh, let's be real. I mean, opposition candidates are not allowed on national television. Television, by far, is the most dominant medium in Russia. They're not going to be allowed to do it. So um, we're going to have elements. Uh, we're going to we're gonna have all the stuff. But, you know, again, it's not going to be a free or fair election. So you said you moved here in 2006. Mm-hmm. So you were you were in that part of the world during a Putin administration, right? So you have kind of firsthand seen and experienced a lot of what we're talking about. 
So I, I'm wondering, what is the pulse of the Russian people in on the administration? What are their opinions on the next elections? Like, do they want change? Do they really want that? They do want change. They, they again, you know, this is something that I keep telling people. They are not blind to the to, to the reality of their incomes falling. They're not blind to the reality of their living standards falling. They're not blind to the reality. They don't have any, really, they don't have any true friends in the world anymore. Um, they are not blind to any of that stuff. Uh, so they do want change. But at the same time, for 16 years, I mean, since they took over Antifa, or 2003, you know, they are constantly being told, this is our Messiah. This is the guy who's going to save the country. Who saved the country. The country was falling apart. He kept the country. You know, he gave you a decent living. You know, all of that stuff. Therefore, he's the only one. Opposition does not have access to television. You know, they, you know, the government more strictly controlling the internet. Um, there are all these things happening. So generally, you know, when people say, when especially people outside of Russia, people who don't really know Russia, who haven't been to Russia, say, this is what Russian people want. Well, we don't know that. We don't know that. Let's allow, you know, free and fair competition. And if in that free and fair competition, free and fair competition, Putin wins. That's what Russian people want. You know, when you, everybody gets access to equal resources, when everybody has access to television, when everybody who's running for president has time to campaign, when they have financial resources, sure. If then if he's 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 if he's elected and held responsible, sure. That's what Russian people want. So um, that's people do want change. People, but people just don't see. For years, they've been told there's an alternative. So they they basically say, "Well, look, I mean, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna vote for this guy." Do you believe that the American people in general see Russians as the Russian people as the foe, whereas in reality, it's actually the regime? Or how do you believe the perception around the world and in the United States is of the of the Russian Federation? What is important here is that Russian people are as much a victim of this regime as everybody else. It's very important for policymakers in, in D.C. But when we talk about this, you know, Russian, you know, if you will, aggression, Russian attacks, whatever the whatever you call it, it's very, very important to, to remember. It's not Russian people. We're not talking about a nation. It's 140 million uh, of individuals, right? Just like all of us sitting here, these are individuals with their own opinions, with their likes and dislikes, and they don't hate America. They don't want to destroy it. You know, they don't want to go to war with us. So it's really important that we're talking about a small group of people that because of their financial interests, because of their business interests, because of their hurt egos, because of their, you know, because of their expansionist views on how they got to be running foreign policy, um, they do not want to see any competition. They do not like what we talk about. And they, 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 they create, create this fake reality about U.S. and they feed to their own people. Some of the greatest freedom fighters in history of humankind were from Russia. They were born in Russia. They were raised in Russia. They were Russian. Um, these are the people who brought down the, the, the empire, right? I mean, these are the people. So we should not forget that. These are freedom-loving people. But we have to support them when we can. And it's really important that in our rhetoric, we do not forget we're talking about individuals and we're talking about a regime and we're not talking about every you know, child, woman, old person and whatever in Russia. They are not the enemy. Do you have, just off the top of your head, do you have an example of some of this propaganda you speak of that comes out of Russia about the U.S.? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, just, just, just to give you a very, very small example, right? Um, 
couple of years ago, there was a, a bridge collapse in Washington State, just a very small example. Russian media, they took that story, they ran it, they falsely presented it as Washington, D.C., in a nation, uh, in the capital of the nation that claims to be the greatest country in the world, bridges have fallen apart. Everything has fallen apart. This is terrible. You know, and, and is this a country that claims to be the leader? I mean, they can't make their bridges work. You know, so they took what was truly a tragic thing because people died there, right? They took a truly tragic story and, and they turned it into this, you know, propaganda piece about how terrible the U.S. is. You know, truly that, you know, everything that we put out there, that instead of getting involved in all the Middle East and stuff, why don't you go fix your bridges? So, you know, and again, this is this is something, look, if one, the thing is, what makes it a propaganda is how systematic it is, right? It wasn't just one outlet because freedom of speech is important. They are entitled to their right to talk about these things, 100%, any media outlet is. But when when you, you watch 10 media channels and they all basically send the same signal and you know that it's being coordinated that's one small example but there i mean look there are millions of those and 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 uh and again uh, obviously you know the rhetoric is the anti-american rhetoric is extremely extremely strong and again the any anyone you talk to is like why do you always have to get involved in things where you don't belong why do you go to places where you don't belong it's that's the that's the main message bhakti how do you define the Russian soul. The idea of Russian soul is, uh, is I mean, when you go to Russia, when you talk to people, you know, it's definitely there is something to the collective psyche, that idea of, you know, when people think of Russians, they automatically think, well, you know, tall, blue-eyed, blondes. But, you know, there are so many minorities. There are so many different kinds of people there who live there, and they consider Russia. But there's this idea of, of Russians, right, of the idea that, you, you know, you're always essentially have to rely on your own. You are by yourself. You're on your own. You're, you, you are, you have to be tough. You don't have to show emotion because that's what, you know, if you, if you show emotion, that's weakness. If you show, uh, you got to be tough because, you know, everybody else is out there is, you know, they're out to get you. I mean, it sounds negative, but really what it what it does do to people is this really that creates this character, this belief that, you know, we are tough people. We are somebody who can, you know, who are masters. I mean, for all the fatalism that is in Russian society, we are masters of our own destiny. What do you believe the Russian people view their role in the world as? This is the question to ask. Like, think about it this way. Um, you are a superpower, 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 and one day you wake up and you're not, right? Not only you're not, but you're humiliated um, in, 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 in their perception, right? They're humiliated. You believe in that idea, in the idea of communism and all that stuff. It's just gone like that in one day. So people took it super, super hard that, you know, we used to be, we used to matter and we don't anymore. We just don't. In the '90s, that idea that Russia doesn't matter anymore, I think, was especially, you know, it was it was it was extremely strong, and I think it really hit home with, you know, '98, '99, when you know, Russian economy with the with the Asian economic crisis, whatnot. Russian economy was it was a terrible mess, and then you know the the NATO bombing of of Serbia, which look, I mean, it was justified in my opinion. But in the opinions of many, many, you know, uh, Russians, it, 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 it was, we we protested, you're our allies. They thought of you as a native as ally, but they went and they bombed their brother Slavs, right? I mean, 
So that, that I remember was a pivotal moment in that, oh my God, we don't matter anymore. I mean, no matter what we say, because you know, the idea was like, sure, we are not as great as they are, but at least we talk to them and they listen to us. But that was the moment where I was just like, oh my God, we don't matter anymore. And Putin came to power at exactly that moment. He came to power at exactly that moment. They went through humiliation of losing Chechnya. I mean, you know, Chechen, a tiny Chechen, you know, um, republic essentially won its independence from a ginormous Russia. You know, Putin came, he turned that around. I mean, right, he brutally, I mean, what happened in Chechnya with Putin, it was brutal murder of innocent civilians. Don't get me wrong. Um, but, you know, in collective psyche, it was like, oh, my God, we are, okay, getting back what we, what we are, you know, what we what we used to be. So Putin came at a really, for, for, for I mean, from, from that, that perspective, he came at a right time, at a convenient and, and, and uh, good time for him. So I think Putin really, for many people, symbolizes that, that return to making a difference. This is the thing. This is the drug that really is preventing many people. To, to see through the fog of propaganda because the drug of we are a great nation will matter. So anyway, uh, like I said, you know, they these days many, many, many Russians see themselves as a kind of ascendant, emerging, whatever, you know, next superpower. N- not next, but, you know, a co-equal, equal superpower. And, you know, um, they matter again and, you know, they want to continue that. What can other countries learn from Russia? I think here's here's what I think all any country looking uh, at Russia that it lesson learned that it should not do. Russia is a great cultural hub for that part of the world. Russia's greatest um, greatest um, export could have been that soft power, right? Not through controlled propaganda, but through genuine genuine you know engagement with the world. You know, telling people, you know, educating people about how about the, the great Russian culture, about the language, about you know, opening up, you know. Just open it up. Just open up the country. Use that. Use the soft power. When you don't have oil to sell, you have a great culture to sell. Do that, right? So I think what every country, we are in a world now where soft power and ability to influence other actors internationally through soft power is by far the most important thing that you can do. Every episode, we like to ask our guests this lighthearted question. Bhakti, if humanity sent a international time capsule into deep space, what item would we include in there to represent <laughs> Russia? <laughs> wow, okay. Wow, you, you got some questions here, you know, about Russian soul and about this. A couple of things, right? First of all, definitely matryoshka, right? The, those nesting dolls, right? Okay. You, you would need a set of those, 100%. By the way, I have a joke about that. You, you know how they, you know, they fit inside each other or whatever. Well, why don't people like them? Um... Yeah, no, I have no idea. Because they're full of themselves. Ah, uh, okay, wow. <laughs> is that so? If it's if it's a dad joke by a girl, then is it a, is <laughs> it a mom joke? I, I is don't that know. that I was okay? So yeah. I don't know. So Stacy, throughout this entire process, I've got these three main takeaways. First, the Russian people are not the enemy of democracy. The Putin administration is the enemy of democracy. Two, the Putin administration's goal in manipulating the information space in Europe and inside their own country is to weaken NATO's unity and divide Europe. Three, today's disinformation propaganda is much more subtle and creative than historically what we've thought of when we hear of Russian propaganda. 
Today's propaganda is designed to make you question the reality and viability of the democratic system we have. So to be an informed global citizen, we have to learn to distinguish between truths, half-truths, and outright lies. A very special thank you to our guest, the senior senator and former presidential candidate from South Carolina, Lindsey Graham, Andrew Kramer, a correspondent for the New York Times, and Ira's own... Bhakti. <laughs> if you liked what you heard, please subscribe, share, rate, and or leave a comment. Email us at podcast at iri.org or tweet us at IRI Global. Thank you to Miriam Lexman for telling us more about the Beacon Project. To learn more about IRI's efforts to counter Russian disinformation, please visit IRI.org. Our theme was composed by Alex Hollinghead. Throughout this episode, you've heard the Russian National Anthem and Million Scarlet Roses by Ala Pogacheva. Many thanks to Chris Holzen, our man in Warsaw, for the music recommendations.